You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 58. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Klar. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to The Local Maximum. I'm Max Klar, and today you're going to hear from engineer and podcaster Mark Weiss, whose show Using Reflection is all about interviewing engineers and getting their big picture ideas that they've learned from their craft. And we love big ideas here in the Local Maximum. And so uh, I'm very excited to play this for you. I asked Mark about the patterns that are emerging on his show with all the people that he interviews. Uh, I asked him about some of his particular interviewees. Uh, He is also a data engineer. And wait, wait, don't gloss over this. What percentage of your day are you using the internet? Like all of it? And when you want to get your info, how long do you want to wait? You don't want to wait. You want it available right now. And data engineers do all the pre-calculations that make sure that this is actually possible. It's a huge part of our lives, even if we don't see, um, if we, even if we don't really see what's going on in the back end. So I asked him about the future of that as well, because I think that's a big uh, piece of the puzzle when it comes to emerging technology. Mark Weiss, as you'll hear, actually started his career in news and media. He moved over to engineering, and we worked together at education software company Wireless Generation. He now works at Beeswax. Let's bring it up. Mark Weiss, welcome to the show. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Thanks, Max. Thanks for having me. So your show is called Using Reflection. I was just on the show. Very nice. Well, I, I uh, we, we had our discussion, what, a year ago? <laughs> yeah, 10 months ago, maybe. Yeah. And I finally got around to getting it, the episode published. But I think I, that was a good interview, though. You were really good at uh, getting me to spill my guts a little bit more. I almost, and I listened to it, I was like, oh, this guy could have pushed more and I would have... Uh, I would have gotten more out, you know. Yeah, maybe I might have even edited out some of the some some things beyond there too. Oh, but, I but said th- thank you for the compliment. I said personal stuff because no, I wouldn't remember. No. Okay. I was just cognizant of the fact that you're no longer at Foursquare. Uh, and oh, yeah, that's fine. I still right. talk about Foursquare like every week on the show. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So using reflection, I know I kind of have an idea of, of uh, where the meaning is, but how did you come up with the podcast name? Sure. So the goal of the podcast and and. The sort of the idea is to have uh, engineers of all kinds talk about uh, sort of their career arc and why they love engineering and what they've learned being engineers and learned about working with others. So there's a notion of reflecting uh, on on that experience, uh, and it's a play on because uh, I'm focusing uh, my my network is mostly software engineers, and that ends up being the primary uh, group of guests. That's a play on words. That's a, also a programming term. And it also kind of fits the first meaning because it's a programming term that means code that can essentially look at the meaning of other code. Right. I remember, well, back we worked together at Wireless Generation. Mm. That was, they talked about reflection all the time. There was a lot of, there was almost a little bit too much reflection in yeah. that uh, code yeah. base. Of, bo- of both kinds, perhaps. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, okay. That's actually a great, a great meaning. And, um, you know, that's, that's something people keep in mind. So I find that, when I interview engineers, there's like a wide range in personalities and a, a wide range in like comfort level with the podcasting medium. Some people are like, yes, I want to get on. Some, pe- some people are a little bit hesitant, but they have really good things to say. So I try to push to get them on. Uh, do you find this too to be the case? Um, not as much. I think a couple things. So one is uh, I think I'm focusing, I'm asking people to focus on kind of uh, – 
their own career, something they should know very well and sort of reflect on their own experience, something they should relatively easily be able to talk about. So there's sort of a self-selection at the level of the topic itself, the agenda maybe you could say. And then secondly, people who agree to come on the show, uh, I've presented that premise to them and they've said, yes, yeah, so presumably they're more inclined to have that conversation. Uh, and then I do have a jur- some journalism in my background and I've had experience managing and I've kind of had a lot of different roles and work for quite some time. So I find that I can sort of have these conversations um, at least get them rolling. And if people are a little stiff in the beginning, it's a question of just finding that avenue in to what they're really excited to talk about. Also, because it's just a general framework rather than a very specific um, uh, domain or subject matter, I can let it go where it, it will. And if I see there's an area that they're more inclined to talk about or that sounds like an interesting avenue to follow, I can just follow that. You know, my goal is really just to end up with an interesting conversation in the end. Yeah, yeah, that's great. And so has there have there been any themes that you've noticed so far in the people that you've interviewed? You've probably asked, you know, how many engineers have you had on? 20, 30? Yeah, this like... is about 23 or so at this point. Right. I think and you were 22 or And you've asked them all to reflect on their past and what they worked on. Do you see any patterns? Um, huh. So I guess, I guess one pattern is that, um, I'm noticing people, uh, maybe about sort of the, the time when it starts to make sense maybe for, to them is maybe seven, eight, 10 years in, like they start to have a period of time where they've worked for a while and they're, they, you know, feel like they want to look back and, and, and sort of take stock. Um, I think also I'm noticing uh, that people who are on the show at least are really focused. Uh, they seem to have a really, most of them anyway, have a clear idea of where, uh, where they want to go. Um, and I, I make note of that. Perhaps there's bias there because I sort of came to tech later uh, after working in other areas and felt yeah. unfocused earlier in my career. Well, where so. did you work first? So my first uh, job was at a newspaper, actually, as a feature reporter. Okay. Um, and I, so I didn't study uh, software engineering or computer science undergrad. Uh, so I kind of started off my career as like a relatively aimless liberal arts person. And I enjoyed quite a bit um, the newspaper work. And in fact, it's one of the reasons I wanted to start the show again, which uh, we could return to that in a moment. Uh, but um, I, 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 it, I realized also there were real true reporters who had, a, had a, um, a nose for the news and were obsessed with that and built up sources. And they were I could see they were better at it than me. And I wasn't going to be my thing. And it just took me a while to kind of realize I really wanted to do tech. Uh, So I'm always impressed by people who are a lot earlier in their career and are seem already really directed and focused, you know. But uh, maybe I'm learning more from them and I've been working 20 years or whatever than than they're learning from me, you know. Yeah, but you're you're kind of circling back to your news roots now, right? Exactly. So yeah, the idea. One of the reasons I started the show was this: uh, the two main goals. So one is this idea of sharing the wisdom of experience, which you know is relatively clear from what I've said about the sort of the goal of the conversations and the guests. Um, and you know, hopefully, maybe uh, one audience are folks earlier in their career who can sort of jumpstart and get some ideas and perspective and. Uh, from that. And the other was that I really, it was really a formative experience for me to do that kind of uh, feature reporting, interviewing people really, uh, because I realized, so I had, 
you know, my background was just kind of growing up in the suburbs of New Jersey, uh, going to prep school. I went to Columbia. And then uh, all of a sudden I was living in Jersey City and it was a very different environment than where I'd grown up. And my job was just to interview sort of everyday folks in the city. Uh, and, that was in your news job. Yeah. Hmm. And, uh, you know, I very quickly realized how much a bubble I'd been in and how I thought I knew everything. And I really realized that folks from completely different backgrounds, I could learn so much from them. And also the whole point of when you're writing a story like that is there's sort of one, there's a hook. Someone has something interesting or unique or remarkable about them. That's why you're writing the story. And so I really realized how much I could learn from each person. And uh, it really kind of just opened me uh, up a lot to that idea. So I wanted to return to that with this show. And sort of that's the same idea that you don't need these stars or you don't need the CEOs. You, you don't need people who are uh, shepherding massive open source projects that really all of us, the kind of conversations we have at work every day with our colleagues, all of us have uh, stories to tell and we can learn from each other. Yes, uh, power to the average person. I like doing yeah. that on this show because <laughs> it's um, there's a lot of engineers out there in particular. I, I you know, maybe half my... Eh, probably like 40% of my interviewees are, are engineers now, but it's like, you know, they have a lot of really cool stories to tell mm. and no one's telling them. They don't write. They don't, you know, maybe one eng blog post uh, once every two years and one paper every two years. Not enough. Right. Right. And, you know, it's funny, too, in relation to that, uh, one of our former colleagues, you may remember Jesse Davis. Sure. Yeah. yeah who's um, he's at uh, Mongo now. Uh, and. He had written a, a blog a couple years ago where he said basically engineers should blog even if even if uh, they don't have ideas very often or they don't think there's a huge audience because it's a specific audience and it's a specific article and the, pe the people for whom that's valuable, they will find it. You know, and so I kind of think the same thing applies here where maybe that, you know, not everyone in the world is interested in engineer shop talk, but engineers certainly are. Right. You know. So I, I actually want to dig into something that you said earlier, which was the interviews with people in North Jersey. Like, uh -huh. it, it, could you give me a specific on that? Because that sounds really interesting. Sure, sure. Let's see if I can remember some of the good ones. Uh, so there was, um, I mean, a really one that really touched me was uh, this guy who was just like a coach of a youth uh, basketball team at like a youth organization and how much he loved the kids there. And many of the kids were, you know, from really, had really tough circumstances so it was just those kinds of things or like a someone who's just a health inspector, you know, and the crazy uh, stories of you can imagine all the different things a health inspector sees, you know, so they weren't like um, earth shattering. It was quite, almost the opposite that sort of these what you would think of as just everyday stories. Yeah, but you could learn so much, you know, uh, and they were and I found it fascinating. You know, and that yeah. the trick of writing those things is to find that vein, right? And that that that's the point. And the discipline of newspaper work is you have a very small amount of space and a specific amount of space, and you have a deadline. And so you learn, you learn to uh, take the interview and uh, boil it, break it down, and melt it down, and reshape it, and put it into that form. And the form gets kind of imprinted on your brain, and you know you learn to write uh, and just produce. So it's not that different than coding in that sense, you know? Yeah. Well, a lot of simplifying, a lot of making it all work together. Right. It's a little bit more forgiving than coding, I think, sometimes. Yeah. Right? yeah. But but it's a, you'd be surprised how structured, in particular, that form is. Yeah. You know, you get to the point where you know 
here comes the transitional, you know, here comes the transition, boom, boom, boom. It's, it's almost like a rhythm in your head. Yeah. So something you said earlier, I found interesting that people found that something clicked, something comes together after seven years. Mm. And I'm not, I don't have a good, I've been at this for longer than that. And I don't really have a good sense of what that is. I feel like, I, I feel like I agree, but I'm having trouble articulating it. What exactly did you find there? Well, I don't want to overstate that there's like a law of seven years. The, right, right, but, right. <laughs> but but I, I, what is the what is the thing that people get a sense of after a bit of experience? Like, how do you verbalize Well, so, you, you know, I do ask some more specific questions. So one is, um, what have you learned working with others? What have you learned about what makes effective teams? So those are the kinds of things that you don't know when you're starting out. But certainly you've they had... Don't, don't teach that in school. No. Yeah, and, and you can't really learn it other than being on teams and being in work professional situations. And so once you've had a few of those and you have some uh, points of comparison, you know, likely you've had some both negative and positive lessons at that point, sort of, I never want to do that again. I would never want to be in that kind of team situation again, or this was really well done at this place. Uh, you can take stock, you know. Um, and I think the thoughtful guests... You, you know, it's really, that's really a large part of uh, what they have had insight about. Uh, you know, then another area is just what you can get into some of the details of what their work is and why they love it. Uh, you know, why what they find interesting about it. Um, you know, sometimes people are in the midst of a change or made a recent change. So you can kind of ask them what the motivation was for that. And that's both looking back and looking forward. Yeah, yeah. I I I feel like after a few years you get more of a sense of where you're going or more of a sense of purpose. And to me, like when I was working at Wireless Generation, that was very difficult because I was at a school and I didn't really know what I wanted to do and it didn't seem like a lot of doors were open. Mm -hmm. So it got very frustrating. And mm -hmm. also <laughs> I feel like as soon as I hit maybe age 25, 26, my interpersonal experience, uh, experience went from mostly negative to mostly positive very mm. quickly. Mm -hmm. I don't know why that is. I feel like it's partially bad luck. Yeah. But, it, it, but it, also, um, you know, experience helps too. Yeah, your own maturity. But yeah. certainly the, the big variable there you have no control over is who else is going to be working with you when yeah. you go to a new place. But, um, you know, you just made a change, right? So sure, relatively yeah. recently. So you kind of went through this experience yourself, right? I mean, you, yeah. part of deciding to change is looking kind of back and saying, you know, what is it that I want to do next and can I do it where I am, right? Yeah. I mean, we could talk, we're going to talk about this in a second, mm. but I am noticing a lot of things about this change that after being at a place for seven and a half years right. uh, is uh, throwing me off a little bit. I mean, I'm, I'm not... Uh, I'm having a real, really good time here. It's like awesome, but there are it's it's tough. It was I was getting a little too comfortable over. Right. There. Well, that's exactly <laughs> it. Once you're at a place for a while, you can be uh, you're very comfortable. You're very familiar, right? So, like where I am now, I've been there about three years, and I joined pretty early. Yeah. So I'm really familiar with so much of it, so much of the stack, so much of sort of the parameters of what my job is every day, and that's great in a sense because I can go quickly, I can help newer folks, I can have a lot of impact, but at the same time, right, you do get the sense the whole world is happening out there, yeah. and you know, you're in your world, right? So just the, the act of changing uh, forces a really steep initial learning curve and, and all the sort of assumptions you had about how to do things, 
are, are you see you know you see them in a new light there are many ways to do, to achieve the same goals right yeah and i i do want to talk more specifically about what has changed in data engineering sure. which is what you do but yeah. i well let's back up a second okay. before we get into that you can because, go wherever you want to man yeah no i want to i want to i want to just define data engineering i did okay. a whole show on it back in episode 34 with joe Crowback. Uh -huh. actually he's another person you might want to consider to have on your show because you know that's that's what he does. He, sure. he does a Data Eng Weekly uh, newsletter. Uh huh. So, awesome. um, yeah, yeah. And and now anyone who has been on my show has podcast experience. Um, hmm. So, yeah. Last week, I I was um, I was talking about how data scientists and machine learning engineers and data engineers they're confused by the general public. The even companies when they post you know, job descriptions, HR, they confuse them all the time. Mm -hmm. So when you get questions about that, you know, how do you describe what you do? Um, you know, not just inside baseball when like, you know, someone, you know, maybe a friend of yours or a family member who's, who's, uh, you know, not, um, not on the inside. How do you describe to them what you do versus, you know, what I'm sure like I get called what data scientist, data engineer, machine learning engineer, people just say, hey, this is Max. He's X. And it's like one of those things. And it's like, fine, I'll let that go. Right. You know, <laughs> how do you feel about that? Well, right. So uh, correcting every time is a rabbit hole. For no, sure. no, no, no. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, you know, you asked a couple different things there. So unpacking that uh, one was sort of how do we describe how would I describe what I do to like civilians? Right. right? OK, so. I think at that level, you can say something like, well, so, you know, my business buys ads on the Internet, which creates a lot of data, which are, are recordings of information about the, the buying of those ads. So we have this big pile of data and it's coming in from all over the place. And what we need to do is put it into a form where it's organized so that we can ask questions. You know, so that's kind of maybe a high level description. And that is really, you know, largely what it is. So one way to think about the answer to this question is, what is the point of what you're doing in terms of the business? Why are you doing it? What is it? What does it what uh, what abilities or, or benefits does it give the business? What does right. it allow other people in the business to do? And that's when like as an, an executive or someone might ask that question without right. knowing, you know, particularly if it's someone who's not, who didn't come through the engineering side. Right. You know, sure. They're going to want to know that. Yeah. They need answers to questions. And the answers to those questions are buried in, you know, uh, all this, all this disparate uh, data that's just all over the place. You know, so to be a little more specific in our case, we buy ads. And then, you know, later people go and do things like go to a store and buy something or go to a page and fill out a form or um, whatever it might be. And, you know, how do you connect those two things? That's like a very uh, core, um, you know, in, in, on online advertising uh, example. I, I still think that when you say you buy ads, people get confused because sure. they think that you're buying well, ads for like yeah, uh, that's flower, a whole... 1-800-Flowers or yes. something directly. Yeah, so that's which... that's true. Uh what the in particular so beeswax is in what's called a real-time bidding so this yeah. is a ready this, baroque this is the stuff that blows my yes. mind and even after working it uh, <laughs> for two and a half years yeah. i'm still like when when somebody asks me i'm like oh god yeah <laughs> so i've had i've done many interviews and job interviews and so on where i explain this to folks uh you know here's what we do so i have gone around this many times but it is sort of in ridiculously broke uh for uh, the result but the basic idea is you visit a web page there's an ad on the page what happens so what happens is 
the say you went to CNN.com, not to be political, but that's uh, my, my go-to example. So okay. there's an ad there. So CNN sends a message that says we have an ad and it describes the ad. Uh, there are businesses that collect all of those messages and uh, those messages describe, you know, what page it's on, what category they may tell you about the user and so on. Uh, what we do is listen for those messages, which are forwarded on to us and decide whether we want to buy it uh, on behalf. So we want to show an ad. Our customers want to show ads. So we're saying, oh, you have told us you want to show ads on the CNN sports page to people who live in New York City. This ad is perfect. So we say we want to spend we want to pay a dollar. And then we tell the uh, the exchange, which is the business who's collected all these messages and forward them on. Hey, we're bidding a dollar. And they say, OK, you win. And then they arrange to show our ad back to the user. So that's a very high level description of what we do. And all that happens in real time. That happens, you know, millions of times a second. And we're answering every one of those requests in, say, 20 to 30 milliseconds. And you but because you know, do you have a, a you have a data engineering pipeline that I assume pre-computes a lot of stuff? Right. So that way, right. when the real time bid happens, you already know, um, you already have like an index of right. all the things you need. Right. Yeah. So there's a bunch of different data happening around this and you alluded to some of it. So what I described is sort of the real time part of our platform or yeah. any platform in this area. So yeah. data, a, a lot well, of data- I mean, even like if somebody's, if I was teaching someone like in high school, how a search engine works, right. I wouldn't be like, you type in the search and then, well- they might say, well, you, you type in the thing in Google right, and, and it searches the whole Google internet. Google searches the internet. But it doesn't actually search the whole internet. Right. It has an index. Right, exactly. So the same kind of thing is happening here. Uh, for for all the data that's deciding how much we want to bid, uh, which, you know, broadly you could call sort of optimization. Um, but you're saying basically like this ad for this campaign is worth this much. Yes, th at that point, you can't run a whole machine learning model and uh, compute all of that at that time. You, what you've done is pre-trained the model and even then taken the results of it typically and flatten that out into some kind of uh, very fast thing you can look up like a key value. Now we're getting more technical than the civilian, right. but that's fine, right? So you've basically taken the results of the model and, and taken basically all the combinations of values for all the features, right, and, and the predictions and then built a big giant hash table, which you put in memory and you can look at, you know, half a millisecond. What are you trying to predict generally? Like so how, how you, well the client is? The client gives you like, hey, we want an ad that has this these properties. And right. You're trying so, to, you know, there are different levels of this. The yeah. simplest might be to say, put a factor and bid more if certain combination of values is there. Uh, then you might have a specific price you're willing to pay or a floor uh, and so on. Uh, so, you know, it depends on um, like how it's turned into a product. Gotcha. So didn't we determine that, so this, this data comes up to Foursquare, didn't we determine that without knowing it, we were like only a few steps removed from mm. like the data pipeline? Yeah, right. So, so then to the data engineering part of this, um, through all these, uh, these transactions, all the purchasing of these ads, many, many uh, mountains of event data gets generated. So yeah. every incoming uh, um, auction that we see is an event. Every time we bid, that's an event. Yeah. Every time we actually win the, and we win the auction and we show the ad, that's called an impression. That's an event. Later on, you click on the ad. Then you go visit some website. So all of this and then, you know, that's kind of the core of all the data that the data engineering team then needs to gather and uh, organize and line up. You know, being te more technically, we need to join all that, right, so that it all uh, matches. And, um, you know, then we can use that to build models 
as we were just describing, we can use that to pr provide reporting to customers. Yeah, and you know, so it's interesting because Foursquare just focused on okay, learning. All we did, I think, I, I the, the thing's so complicated. I, I actually don't know, but I think the the the, the all those years thing, and you don't know. Yeah, no. Well, <laughs> the main thing we did. Well, you kind of tell yourself little stories, right? To be like, this is what we do, and. This is complicated. Like what? So I um I took out a loan once, and there were all these like terms and lots of pages, and I was just like, you know what? My number one thing is to make payments. And like when I when I sign my lease, and the lease is really long, I'm like, same thing. My 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 job is to make payments, and their job is to provide me an apartment. Right. That's what this whole lease says. Right. I don't have to worry. Right. TLDR. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, so Foursquare does there is just figure out you know, the people who are um, the people who are being targeted by the ads, just where they've been mm -hmm. in the past. Mm -hmm. And so that could be valuable, but there's a million other things I could think of that could be valuable. And it's just like, it's all kludged together in like, it, there's not some like well-oiled AI here. Right. It's just some, well, then, I mean, there's some, some narrow AIs in specific circumstances that mm -hmm. work pretty well, but mm -hmm. then all of these models and data are just, I, I picture like a mess of wires, uh, <laughs> like you see right here with our microphones, but yeah. times a thousand. Yeah. Uh, that connects all of these data sources together. Well, sure. And and I think that's uh, largely true and largely uh, the data engineer's job is to uh, untangle that uh, and, you know, also be create a lot of efficiency. It, obviously scale, right? So all internet businesses, you need to scale. But scale comes largely from doing a good job of building the processing of all this data uh, so that it is... Um, uh, the code is not crazy to maintain. You can add new data relatively easily. Uh, you have you've built on underlying pieces of architecture that do the actual processing in ways that can uh, grow as the amount of data grows without falling over and and not uh, not you know and failing. Uh, so that's a lot of what it you know it is. There's also uh, so a lot of software design too. Uh, you know not just operational and architecture of thinking about. Um, the definitions of these different sets of data, how to keep them consistent, how to uh, sort of have canonical definitions in one place, uh, yeah. you know, all of this sort of how thing. to have like different dates, yeah, um, that too, different versions, yeah, managing so. uh, versioning of data, managing time, uh, dealing with data that's flowing in in a stream versus dealing with data demarcated as you know, sort of uh, in batches, like this is the data from this hour. Right. So there's a lot of uh, aspects to it. Um, but yeah, so I don't know where, where how, where yeah, I was going no, with that, I but. just think that, I mean, these problems are, well, they're being solved very differently in different places, but, mm -hmm. but these are very common problems that everybody has. Yeah. You know, even in your own life, like, how do I keep all, <laughs> how do I keep all my papers organized? Right. It's just that on a global scale. Right. Uh, so yeah, what I wanted to now circle back to is, mm. you know, I just changed jobs and right. I found out that so much has happened uh -huh. in the last four years. Yeah that the tech stack preferred by startup has just completely changed. Yeah. So what do you see as like the latest trend in data engineering? Uh -huh. and, and among those trends, what do you think is going to stick? Okay, sure. So, uh, you know, first just responding to your uh, reaction. Um, yeah, I think we're, we've been in a time the last, I'd say even five years of tremendous adoption in the cloud and the pace of innovation has gotten... Uh, even accelerating, I think. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's a huge enabler. 
uh, and it's a company this where you are now, it's a younger company. It's a huge enabler in terms of being able to build a product quickly and get it to market quickly and build scale very quickly. I mean, the the the, the devil's bargain here is we're all paying a tax back to Amazon, right? Yeah. And and that's a whole other topic I don't necessarily right. want to so dive I've, into. For people who don't know, Amazon is the main um, company that provides these cloud services to the mm-hmm. companies. Other companies do it too, uh, Google, Microsoft. But um, yeah, we use Amazon here. Mm-hmm. Uh, we use Amazon a lot of Foursquare. In fact, we when I left, they were in the middle of a big project moving all of our stuff over to AWS, not going to get into that, but it's mm-hmm. like, yeah, like, and I'm, I was like, why are we doing that? But now I'm like, oh yeah, that's what everyone's doing now. Well, it's yeah. not just, and, and there, there are really good reasons. It's yeah. very convenient and fast and yeah. a rich yeah. ecosystem of tools. So you can get up to, you know, very high levels of functionality very quickly. And so, you know, for startups and uh, any business where uh, nimbleness is a, an advantage, it's a huge advantage. So there's that. That's kind of why, at a very high level, one of the main reasons people move to cloud. A second, I think, is a cost, uh, and you know, a third is, frankly, um, you know, then you don't need as many people involved with procuring and operating physical hardware. You need yeah. very few, if any. Uh, you know, so you need perhaps other folks who are managing costs and managing the vendor relationship. Um, you still need operations to manage security and you still need to understand about networking, though less. And probably we need to, and the kind of job I'm in where we have this very high scale platform, a lot more than a lot of businesses. But, you know, so there's a lot of reasons why the cloud has happened. So that's clearly a trend that's here to stay. Uh, in terms of specifically data engineering, um, you know, I think it's interesting. We we see the last several years, probably seven or eight years, there's been this big move toward uh, libraries and platforms to define and run pipelines. And, uh, you know, the software engineering, uh, computer science actually sort of concept behind this is called a DAG, which is basically, um, you know, a series of steps that proceed in one direction. Right. So to break it down for the audience, uh, it's like, okay, if I need to do, oh God, I can't think of a good example. Uh, I'm trying to think of a specific example. It's like if I need to do A, then before I do A, I need to do B, C, and D. And so I picture B, C, and D out there, but they all have arrows to A. And so before I do A, I could do B, C, and D. Right. I'm trying to think maybe like a, a recipe. Might yeah, be a or even example. just the cla- any kind of classic flowchart you've seen. Right, flowchart, except right. you can't circle or back right. on itself. That's, right. that's the... In DAG, D-A-G, A stands for acyclic. That means right. that it can't... So, right. That means it's well-founded. Actually, I did a whole show on mathematical well-foundedness, so maybe this links back to that. There you go. <laughs> so, you know, and I think that it's a powerful concept, but it's still, I think, not where we need to end up and where things are headed. Uh, and by which Interesting. I, so by which I mean, um, I still consider this very early days for... Or early days, uh, and I would, you know, and to be more specific... Um, I think describing things that way, go back to the recipe analogy. Yeah. So if you talk about, uh, I'm going to define my pipeline as a series of steps, and I'm going to write this code that defines each step and shows how each step one connects to the next. Right. Right. Uh, That would be like me telling you how to bake a cake by saying, take the cookbook down off the shelf, open to page 642, read the first, read the ingredients get all the ingredients you need, arrange them on the counter, read the tools you need, get all the tools you need, 
put them out on the counter. Yeah. Like it's it's all these things that are procedures you need to follow to bake a cake. But you are a person who knows how to bake a cake. And what you actually need is a description of just what you need to do to bake the cake, not all those other steps, right? You need, so like where we are is we're each, we're writing out this whole series of operations that the person who, who wants the data doesn't care about at all. They don't care about how oh, the I data see. is delivered to them at all. It's irrelevant to them. So you are a data scientist, let's say, and you need a set of data and you know the you know the data you need. I need uh, Northeast region sales for widgets in Q3 and right. I need Q4 and I need to compare them and that's it. So you should just be able to write like, and you know, you should be able to describe that and get that data. And so the, the, the technical thing to compare this to and why I say we're not there yet is SQL itself. Right. right? Yeah, so, that's what I was thinking because I'm like, well, that's a, uh, that's a database call. Yeah. But in, in the case of these, um, and a lot of people are saying, well, well, I can do that in my in my Excel spreadsheet or in my database. But in, in terms of these large data systems, um, it's not always that simple. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, for 50 years approximately, SQL has been a, a completely declarative way of describing, I want this data. And then boom, that data appears in front of you. And that's an incredibly powerful abstraction that's powered, you know, largely this modern era of uh, software-driven business. Uh, it's been the backbone of, the, of this whole revolution in business toward uh, doing everything, uh, you know, with computers, uh, inf you know, in whatever it was called, information systems, whatever. And yeah. so we're not there yet. You know, what we need is we, we, as data engineers, I think we should be moving toward platforms that again abstract away all these uh, hoops that we have to jump through to gather this data from all these crazy places where it is and deliver it and be delivering our users something similar to SQL, if not a SQL abstraction itself, where they can just say uh, what they need. And I think we're, you know, I think we're a step away from that still, you know. Is there anyone working on that? Or are there any tools that approach that? Well, I know, you know, I know folks at different, I, I know folks at bigger companies than mine who've mentioned that they're working on something like that. I, I believe that, you know, we should be going in that direction. We're not, I think, there yet. Um, but, you know, we do know that we basically, you know, our goal at a high level is to make this a service, right? Data as a service. So that's a way of saying the same thing. Um, there aren't like, there aren't really like the main, um, uh, say hot open source things in the space right now, tools in the space right now, the biggest one is Airflow, which yeah, is- we're using that here. Right. But that, everyone, that has DAGs. Everyone's using it. And it's yeah. still very, very, very much, this is a DAG framework. But what's interesting is you see people starting to write about, so there was a blog from Bloomberg, um, there's a couple other folks have written about this too, that the level of abstraction there is quote unquote all wrong. And so for example, the Bloomberg model was, they basically, all the DAG really is is a scheduler and uh, you know knows when to start something. And then every step just becomes like a, a generic like uh, operator, which is a, runs a container, and so you know you you move all the logic of what's happening out of out of there, and again you know basically uh, uh, you know make that a higher level abstraction. That's really just like yes, it's still a series of steps, but you can see it moving in that direction. So that's one thing I think that needs to happen. I think another obvious area which is happening throughout everything in cloud in general is Kubernetes and uh, containerization. Um, so, you know, the, the, like for example, at Beeswax, and I'm sure many, many businesses operating in the cloud have a relatively similar uh, architecture, uh, 
you know, we are not running any of our own databases on our, our own bare metal. It's all managed uh, databases. And uh, for example, you know, we're using, a, we're moving to a new fully managed uh, data warehouse solution that we interact with uh, only over HTTP, you know, and we, and, and they manage everything about it is uh, scales horizontally, meaning we add more data and they just magically support that. Uh, and I think that's that's an example again of this higher level abstraction that needs to be there. I, I think that's another key piece of the architecture that's still stuck in kind of a pre-cloud era um, is the amount of uh, management you need to do with databases still and the amount of man, uh, expertise you need to get perf the performance you need. Uh, so, you know, for example, we were using Redshift, which is Amazon's premier offering in this space, and it's basically like an old style pre-cloud uh, database wrapped in a little bit of SaaS, you know, managed. You still need, you still have a fixed size cluster. If your data falls over, you still need to basically take a snapshot of your database and resize a cluster and copy a snapshot, all this stuff. You don't have uh, uh, the flexibility you need. And when things don't perform well, you get into this very arcane query tuning, which I love and enjoy, but it's not the kind of thing that, um, you know, is going to allow smaller businesses without that expert staff to be able to move quickly. So I think that's another area where definitely we're going to see changes. Very cool. Very cool. Um, Sorry, that was a long. No, no, very, very helpful. Um, one thing I've noticed, like in my last few years of Foursquare, was like hearing more and more about um, uh, about um, um, Docker containers. Like yeah. in like 2015, they're like, oh, there's a new thing called Docker containers. 2016, oh, you should use it. 2017, what? You don't use it? Right. 20, like, right. <laughs> every year by year, and it's like, um, oh my god, this whole thing passed me by. Yeah, well, there's also a cargo cult thing that you have to be wary of. Um, yeah, but, but it's but it's a little self fulfilling too. So you can criticize it and say, well, everyone's doing that. That's not a reason to do it. Yeah. But yeah. on the other hand, when you're um, relatively speaking a smaller business, and therefore relatively speaking, like at this point, almost beholden to open source because of the amount of power you get for for often no cost yeah. uh, or no licensing cost at least the flexibility of not locking into long-term licensing costs, you almost have to go cargo cult because you need to pick the projects that have momentum behind them, that have that are being actively developed, that have community behind them, that are where the action is because that's really what's moving everything forward. And then you could look up a couple years later and you made a wrong decision and now all, some other business has all kinds of abilities you don't have. Yeah, I mean, so we had this issue at Foursquare where we had our MapReduce jobs back in the day, we still have. Mm -hmm. And then we moved over to, uh, well, Scalding, which is a little more SQL-like, but mm -hmm. it creates MapReduce jobs automatically. And then our Scalding experts who helped us get set up, like, left the company. Mm. And so <laughs> we're just kind of um, try. And then me and the other people who learn from the experts, now we're gone. And now it's like, okay, um, yeah, it's it's it feels like it's going to be tough if you pick a technology that is, I mean, Scalding is actually pretty popular, but mm -hmm. it's like, it, it it does take some expertise to be built in the company. That's not something that like a, a small business has. Right. Uh, whereas you have to have like a few hundred people. And even then, sometimes there aren't, you know, engineering resources available to support one or the other. Right. Which is an argument, I think, for um, uh, 
databases in SQL, as an example, like a yeah. declarative way of having business folks and users of the technology be able to describe oh, yeah. what they the need well understood and one. getting as much as you possibly can from the, the underlying tools itself. You know, uh, I would say that's an obvious additional trend we're seeing with uh, the evolution of cloud platforms is uh, more and more these little pockets of expertise, for example, taking the, the data warehouse again as the example, you know, 20 years ago, let's say, uh, or even 10 when you and I were working together at Wireless and they were running uh, everything on a, a Oracle uh, data warehouse solution. Sure, yeah. And we had one of the best uh, Oracle DBAs in the world there. Right. Anthony Molinaro. Yeah, I, I bought his book. Yeah. And, you know, he was uh, crucial uh, to the success of the company. And at that time, you know, and probably the decade, two decades before that, say, uh, you know, it was essentially that's how every business was running with running their own database servers, running on traditional relational databases and having experts in house operate them. And so now where we are is, you know, we we're getting that as a service from one company that's concentrated the the expertise. Right. And then, um, you know, delivering that back as a service, essentially. So all these other businesses no longer need uh, those experts, but they can benefit from that expertise. You're sort of taking these areas of technical expertise and productizing them. So before we head out, mm. um, you among the interviews that you've done for using Reflection, what were there any that surprised you? And, and where would you kind of, um, if you had to recommend some to my listeners, sure. let's hear your recommendations on where to get started. I'm sure you like them all. Yeah. I'm not asking you to pick favorites. But uh, specific recommendations that come to mind for local maximum listeners. Right. So, of course, there's the episode uh, we, that you did. Uh, we can always recommend can that. And I'm that. sure you'll link yeah. to that. Uh, already uh, done. Yeah. <laughs> already. I have an on other podcasts right. section. So. Which inspired me to it's add already. that of my own, yeah. too, on my uh, um, uh, using reflection. Although, I, I, yeah, I got some um, some feedback from uh, from someone who knows marketing. He's like, you got to make that more prominent on your oh. site. You got <laughs> you know, to show people that you no, have I, media appearances. I appreciate uh, any <laughs> any uh, help and support you give. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's really, it's hard to pick favorites uh, in a way uncomfortable, but, um, you know, some of them were, uh, I'll pick one that I think was really surprising and maybe head spinning, uh, and maybe then just a couple more. So the episode with Hayden Kikasi, who is actually a colleague of mine at Wireless, I'm not sure if you uh, worked with him. He might have been after no, your time. No, I don't time. think so. Uh, you know, he he's working at a fintech company now called Investor. Uh, and he, I knew he was kind of into gaming and he'd done a gaming startup prior to that. But the interview went way, became very philosophical and got into this whole set of ideas around the relationship between learning and um, ethics and uh, cognition and gaming itself and the relationship between them. And it was really, uh, I was uh, surprised. And then I just felt like I kind of was grabbing the edge of the surfboard and just hanging on. So, <laughs> so that was really fun. That sounds like a good interview. Yeah, that was really fun. Uh, there was a really good one with the uh, CTO of Interviewing IO, Andrew Marsh, which is, I think, a good one from the point of view of getting an insight into, um, uh, it was sort of topical now, like what it was like to work on Facebook games as they were scaling up. And again, a lot about uh, gaming. Uh, he had a, a lot of gaming background. Um, there's one with another former colleague of ours, uh, Jenny Young, who it's a really cool one uh, because 
the business itself is really cool. She writes, runs uh, Brooklyn Robot Foundry, which is a robotic school for kids. Brooklyn Robot Foundry. Yes, robotic school for kids. And so that one is, you know, I, I'm friendly with her. I've known her a long time. That one I think is notable for the sort of, uh, it's about mechanical engineering. So it's not software. And it's about this amazing uh, business. It's very unique and just kind of the ease of the conversation. So those are some really good ones to start with. Um, you know, I could go on. I don't, I, again, I feel bad picking, choosing sides. Great. No, no, no. It's, it's fine. I will link to those um, on the show notes page, hmm. which is going to be localmaxradio.com slash 58. And um, one that I like, I listened to a few of them. Uh, the the one that, that comes to my mind, mainly because of someone I know, is like Aaron Boyd. Because yeah, the Aaron was, one is really good, He was too. the first one who uh, – and he said at the beginning that he was, like, terrified. I'm like, what do you have to be terrified of? Yeah. He sounds great. Yeah. I don't know. It was just – management ones are usually not as exciting, and he makes it exciting. So I, Oh, that's great. Yeah, and I know you worked with him, right? Well, he hired – he's the first one who hired me right. ever in my life. Well, right. well, out, well, you know, for a job like this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that one's really good because, again, I'm friendly with Aaron, so there's an ease to it. Yeah. And we do go – into a lot of sort of uh, what you've learned about managing folks and healthy teams and having teams succeed, which is, uh, you know, very useful to, to all of us. Well, I, the, the thing that, that, that reached to me is like, how do you um, deal with the fact that there's a, you know, information imbalance? How do you deal with the fact, how do you give to uh, engineers and developers autonomy, which is a great thing to have? Um, and he had some really good ideas on that. So right. Like, but then at, by giving them autonomy, now you don't know what they're doing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm usually on the, uh, on the other side of that, so right. I don't have to worry. Right. Um, all right. So we're almost out of time. Um, any last thoughts from you? And also tell the local maximum listeners where we can find all your stuff. Sure. Oh, thanks for having me on. Uh, it was great. Uh, so you can find out more about the show at www.usingreflection.com. And uh, you can follow Using Reflection Pod on Twitter or I'm Mark S. Weiss, M-A-R-K-S-W-E-I-S-S on Twitter. And uh, yeah, and I uh, put post new episodes uh, on Twitter, on linked, on my LinkedIn, which is again, Mark S. Weiss. And, um, you know, I'd love to have some of the local Max listeners check out the show. And, and thanks again. Mark, thanks for being on the show. Great. All right. That's our show for today. Next time, we're going to have a discussion about how the internet, cryptocurrency, and information technology is affecting authoritarian regimes with a focus on Cuba and Venezuela. Uh, there's likely to be more news on Venezuela, unfortunately, by, by next week. But I hope you'll join me for that. Have a great week, everyone. That's the show. Remember to check out the website at localmaxradio.com. If you want to contact me, the host, or ask a question that I can answer on the show, send an email to localmaxradio at gmail.com. This show is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and more. If you want to keep up, remember to subscribe to The Local Maximum on one of these platforms and to follow my Twitter account at Max Sklar. Have a great week. Feel the power. And she said, I don't care what you say. You're gonna see.